yeah, we're going to be uh, doing woman part two tonight in Genesis. Uh, so let's pray as we continue. God, it's a great privilege to be here tonight. It's a great privilege to dig into your word. Uh, it's a great privilege to know that we're here and in Christ we have perfect unity with one another. I pray that as we dig into the word, we're preserving that unity as you call us to. God, we pray for Ben and Christy and Evan and Luke as uh, they've had a long couple days. We praise you and we thank you. God, we know that a lot of times we come before you and we pray for things and then uh, and we pray that you would help us in certain circumstances and then the circumstance passes and you've clearly provided in so many ways and we oftentimes fail to come back and thank you for what you've done and we do not want to do that here. Uh, God, we thank you uh, for the ways that you've provided, uh, ways that were better than even what we knew to pray for. Uh, we thank you for seeing them through the surgery and uh, all the details with the doctor um, and uh, just all the medical things that go on. Uh, God, we thank you and we praise you. And uh, we pray that as they uh, fly back, we pray that you would keep them safe. I uh, pray that any pain that Evan and Luke are feeling, uh, that you would uh, allow that to be uh, to subside and just allow them to, to not be uh, put out of comfort on that. Uh, God, as you allow us to let our requests be made known, those are our requests, but we want to also pray as Christ prayed in the same breath that, uh, God, we desire that your will would be done far above our own. Um, God, we pray uh, that as we dig into Genesis tonight and we look at uh, just the beautiful things that you've done in creation, the, the way that we get to see your handiwork from the beginning and the way that you formed us as man and woman and what that means and <clears throat> what it means as we interact with one another. Uh, God, I just pray that you give us wisdom and insight. Um, God, we thank you for this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in Genesis chapter 2. Our focus tonight is going to be verses 23 through 25, so y'all go ahead and open up there. It's near the beginning of your Bible. Really near the beginning of your Bible. Genesis 2, 23 through 25. Uh, that's going to be our focus I'd like to take a few minutes because the youth are also going through Genesis, as are the adults on Wednesday nights, and I believe that y'all are like one week ahead of us, because I like to spend a little more time on things than Ben does, be a little more thorough. And, uh, and so I believe, though, that y'all are kind of one week ahead of us, and so I'd like to take just a few minutes to kind of recap uh, a little bit about what the youth covered last week, a little bit about what you guys covered last week, so that we can all attempt to at least uh, somewhat get on the same page as we finish making woman tonight, as Ben called it. So in chapter 2, um, what we're talking about here is God's design. We're talking about God's design. We're talking about what God has done. We're talking about what God has made, and we're talking about what God desires. And we should be okay with being about that, uh, about God and what his desire is as opposed to ours. And so we're looking at his design and what he's done uh, in his handiwork. And so I want you to look at 2, verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9. And just as a quick recap, I really want you all to pay attention to the things that are repeated. You know, God, <laughs> as, as he inspired Moses, he, he has every word at his disposal. Uh, he's not just running out of words. You know, I, I explained with the youth a couple weeks ago that, you know, if you turn in an English paper and you've used like the same phrase 15 times, the teacher's going to give it back and say, hey, this is ridiculous. Would you please change your phrase and make this a little better of a paper? 
That's not how it is with God. He has every word at his disposal. He created language. He, I mean, he, he's created all of these things. And so he's not just being redundant, repetitive for the sake of he's sitting there scratching his head saying, I really don't know a good way to say that. He wants you to hear certain things over and over and over again. And so as I read through just these nine verses real quickly, pay attention to the things that are repeated over and over and over again. Thus the heavens and earth, I'm in 2 verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, when no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the, from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, again, we're talking about God's design tonight. And uh, one of the things that, that you hear over and over in there is Lord God. Uh, Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. And God has many names all throughout the scriptures. You all know a lot of them. They, there used to be a, a kind of a cheesy poster with funny graphics, but it had like all these names of God that were from... Uh, I had it. I think most of the people have have seen it at least. And uh, it has all the names of God and all of the uh, different things that he's referred to in the scriptures. And here, I just, Lord God is repeated. I'm, and I'm sitting there reading it. I'm wondering why. And uh, to think about, you know, Lord God versus even, you know, Father God. Why didn't it say Father God? Consider lordship. Consider that dominion. I mean, some of the other things that he repeats with it, um, with Lord God, is that uh, he's repeated um, from all his work that he had done, the things that he had done and his work. What did he rest from? His work that he had done. And which man are we talking about? The man that he created. And so the things that are repeated here point to his lordship, his dominion over all this. No man had any, any hand in, in the creation process. This is what God has done, and God has chosen to repeat it in such a way that you would understand, hey, I want you to know that I did this. God's saying, I want you to get that this is my handiwork, this is my design. And that's this picture of lordship as we see Lord God repeated over and over again. Another thing to consider in this whole process of, of the creation, uh, that God never s- stops and like picks Adam's brain for anything. He, he never says, uh, you never see God saying, hey Adam, Adam, hey, whoosh, whoosh, up here. When you get a minute, I just want to ask like what you think. I just want to see like what you're, Maybe what you would do with this part of the garden or what your idea would be over here. You know, would, would you like to work the garden or would you like to be more of a florist? Would you like to take pictures of the flowers as opposed to keeping the garden? He doesn't pick Adam's brain. Why? Because he doesn't need to. He repeats over and over, he's the Lord God. It's the stuff that he has made by the work of his hands. Man did not have a hand in the creation because God is sovereign in his creating. Look at verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. 
Um, to work it and to keep it, again, the, uh, I'm recapping. These are things you've already heard. That's a picture of dominion and also a picture of protection of the man and his responsibilities in the garden. And also something we see here is God is laying a groundwork for his design. God is saying, this is my design. And he kind of lays a groundwork there at the end when he says, you may surely eat of every tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And then he says, why? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So he lays the groundwork and saying, this is my design. And he also explains what happens if we choose an alternative design. One of the recurring themes that we're going to see is that the alternative is sin. If you say, okay, here, God, I see your design. I'm going to shelf it. I'm going to go with something else. He lays the groundwork here saying, this is my design. I'm God. This is my design. And if you decide to choose another way, it equals sin, which equals death. And he says, surely you shall die. Last week... Specifically, you guys looked at verses 18, 18 through 22. Um, youth, pay attention to this because we didn't look at this yet, but we're going to look at it quickly here as we also look at uh, some other things about woman. Uh, last week, verses 18 through 22. Let's just look at that and read it together. Genesis 2:18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused Adam, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. These are the verses that were covered last week with the adults in here. And uh, a few things to remember. One is that aloneness is not good. The, the picture that, um, that, that we see is it, it says, it is not good that the man should be alone. So aloneness actually is equivalent to not good. And, uh, and I've experienced this firsthand. When my wife and daughter go out of town for some reason, like a few weeks ago or last week, I guess, they went to Waco, and, uh, and it was like, time to go to bed. I'm like, what in the world? This isn't right. It's all quiet, and my wife's not here, and my daughter's not in the next room. And in fact, there were a couple times I was like, I was certain I'd heard Ella crying in the other room, and went in there and was like, oh, yeah, they're not here. It wasn't good. It's not right. I, I'm losing my mind in that scenario. And so, um, so it's, I, I find that even now. You know, they go out of town. It's just like things aren't the way they're supposed to be. I hate it. And then I end up tossing and turning till four in the morning and then waking up at six to get an early start. And so I'm inevitably tired. So it isn't good when, when they leave town. They got a little personal. Aloneness is not good. That's the point. Also, we see that uh, Eve is, is a helper. Um, she's not superior and she's not inferior. Been uh, explained real clearly. And I encourage y'all, if y'all haven't heard this or y'all are behind on this or maybe this is your first time here, go online. All the messages for Wednesdays and Sundays are online. I put like 20 more on there this week, and I'm trying to update the website. Um, and so go and, and listen to those. What he explained was that the helper is not superior or not inferior. A lot of times you'll see uh, some of us bonehead men uh, treating women as though they are very inferior, and that's not God's design. And it's sometimes the result is that a woman says, well, I don't need you. I don't need a man. I'll do this. I'll do all these things. I'm better than you. And that's not good either. Uh, but we see it all over the place. And so God's design is that a helper is not superior and not inferior. And in fact, helper, uh, one of the things that Ben shared is it's used 19 times in the Old Testament. And 16 of those times refer to God. And so if 
if you feel like, oh, I'm just a helper. That's so lame. Why did God do that? It's 19 times in the Old Testament, 16 times in reference to God. Uh, being a helper is not an inferior, sad, lame thing in the least bit. And so another thing that was looked at is that this drama of marriage is kind of points to this bigger picture of the church and the church's relationship with God. So the woman or the helper for the man, some things that y'all talked about last week, the woman is opposite. I think we'd all agree on that. Uh, sometimes just feels completely opposite. Uh, suitable. God didn't just th- throw a woman in the mix and say, let's see what happens. He made it so that the helper is opposite and suitable. And also the, the better half, as you hear, um, uh, corresponding or goes with. The woman is corresponding to the man. The man is corresponding to a woman or goes with, which I started laughing when I was reading through that, in that you know, the woman goes with the man, the man goes with the woman. At grade school, when you would ask someone out, I don't know if you all remember that, will you go with me? And my dad always be like, where are you going? And just, that doesn't make any sense. Will you go with me? That's like, that's a dumb question. And uh, I just made my dad sound like a redneck idiot. He's not. Um, uh, but maybe uh, our little grade school theme was a little more biblical than we realized, even though marriage was far, far away. Uh, there's also a picture of completeness there. There's a picture that, um, uh, for me, with my wife, um, in our marriage, uh, there's a completeness about it because of the way that God designed it. And so um, God has said that it is not good for man to be alone. And then after he says that, it almost looks like a mean trick or joke, but God makes everything else first. It says uh, in verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. I'm sure if we had our choice, and God said, It's not good for you to be alone, you wouldn't say, Beast of the field. That's the remedy. Um, it says, so out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So there's this establishment that it's not good for man to be alone, and then uh, it's made even clearer in the uh, creating of all the animals and everything else um, that uh, obviously none of those were right for Adam. Uh, um, let's see here. Uh, why did God do that? Adam needed to know what God already knew. Adam needed to be able to see everything and name everything and continue to exercise his dominion and his authority, but be able to see what it was that God already saw, that it's not good for you to be alone, and nothing that you see here suffices. And, uh, and so uh, Adam needed to know what God already knew. Some other details that y'all covered were a uh, woman was taken from what? The rib, from the side of man, the rib, the side. There's a picture of protection, a picture, again, of equality, not trailing behind him, not walking in front of him, but this side-by-side thing where a man is protecting a woman. And then we always ask the question, where is Jesus in this? And you consider that when Christ slept, the, the bride, the church, was wrought from his side. What that means is that when Christ uh, was crucified and, and paid uh, for our sins, an atonement, a perfect sacrifice, the church could not be what it was designed to be if God had not done that. So when you say that the church was wrought from the side of Christ as he slept, and it's this picture of marriage and woman wrought from the side of man, the church could not be what we were called to be outside of Christ. And so it's only in Christ that the bride of Christ is made what it needs to be. And that can get confusing and real metaphorical and awkward, but, but uh, it's not. It's a really beautiful picture that... Um, you don't have anything inside of you that enables you to do anything in faith. Romans 14 says real plainly, anything done outside of faith is a sin. 
And so the church would be steeped in sin if not for Christ being an atonement for our sins and making the bride what it's supposed to be as it's presented to the groom. Um, also, we see in the garden the first wedding. Uh, it's kind of cool. A lot of times when we have a wedding, what do we do? We rent out a country club or something, and, and uh, usually there's like a wedding DJ or something that's lame at the reception, wears a goofy shirt with a big collar, not all the buttons done all the way up, gold chain. Um, uh, there's a picture of, you know, we, we decorate. You know, if we were to have a wedding in here tomorrow, you would, it wouldn't, there wouldn't be stuff left over from Sunday and piles of cords and all kinds of instruments strewn about. If there was going to be a wedding in here, boy, it'd be done up. We'd probably have little ribbons draping the pews for the beautiful eye. Maybe some flower petals, maybe a little arch, some candles lit, music going. And that's what we would be doing if there was going to be a wedding ceremony in here. And it's so cool that this first wedding took place in the garden. They didn't need decorations, man. They had the Garden of Eden. It was beautiful, made by God. And who, who brought the woman to the man? God did. That's a picture of this first wedding. And it's almost, as I think Ben probably explained it in here, uh, this picture that, you know, who gives this woman uh, to, to be married today? It's a picture of her God does. Her God designed this. And it's a beautiful design as it's been ordained by God. So that's our f- picture of the first wedding. Another thing that y'all talked about last week um, was homosexuality and how uh, it doesn't really fit into this design that is God's design. And a big problem that we have uh, oftentimes is that we forget what it says in First Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 15 through 17, I believe. Yeah, again, my notes are everywhere. First um, Peter 3, verse 15 through 17, about how when we give an account for the hope that we have, we're supposed to do it with gentleness and peace. And a lot of times when someone disagrees or is at odds with what we believe, we just want to slam them and slander them and talk bad about them and call them names that are very inappropriate. But the truth is that y'all talked about last week, we're not going to go into it real deep, is that homosexuality is kind of like, remember God painted that picture, he said, this is my design and this is what happens if you stray from my design. And he says, you stray from my design, you choose an alternative path. Uh, that alternative is sin. And so, and we know that sin leads to death for everybody who is uh, not, um, who is not one of the children of God in Christ. And so, those are some of the things that y'all have talked about in last week and some of the things the youth have talked about. So I'm going to consider that we're all on the same page and no one has any questions. It's all just clear as anything. And we will go to verse 23, which is where it brings us tonight. So y'all look at verse 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. My hope tonight is to explain fully without question the, uh, the, uh, the perplexities of woman. I'll explain fully who woman is so that when we leave here, there'll be no question about woman whatsoever. I'll also take time tonight to explain uh, all the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the details of what a Christ-centered uh, sex life looks like. And so uh, those are two things I'm absolutely not going to do tonight. So that's not going to happen. Uh, to explain away all the perplexities, all the questions, all the details Man, I was sitting here looking at all these notes and looking at where we get to tonight. I'm on the phone. I'm like, Ben, you are a loser for going out of town this week. What are you doing, man? They're talking about, oh, we're just going to finish up explaining woman. Okay, I got that. Uh, 
and, uh, and then also look at this perfect, beautiful union between husband and wife. And so uh, there's a lot of details. It was funny when we were in staff meeting, you know, we, try, we don't want to, you know, over plan and just take God out of all the details, but a lot of times we'll try and, you know, look at, you know, what do the next few weeks look like so that I can try and correspond as I put some of the worship and song parts together, scripture reading and all these, and, and, uh, and we were talking about Wednesdays, and, and it was like, okay, on this date we'll do man, and then we'll have woman part one, and then we'll need a woman part two, and then the next week we'll do woman part three, and then we'll end it up with woman part four. And, uh, and there was some giggling in staff meeting because it was kind of like, oh, well, this is somewhat complex. And it uh, just happens there's a bonehead guy who gets to teach on it. Um, so uh, what we're actually going to be doing tonight, my goal for the night is this. I hope to expose the truth. And further than that, I don't want this to just be academic. I don't want it just to be an academic thing where we sit and we say, okay, that's truth, great, let's go. I want to expose the truth, but I also want to look at the beauty of the truth. The things that have been revealed in the scriptures here are beautiful. And so I, I want to expose the truth, but I also want to hopefully expose and look at the beauty that's in that truth so that it's not just academic. So let's look at verse 23, read it aloud one more time. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God is making a point here, and Adam gets the point. God's wanting to make a point here about it's not good for you to be alone. God brings the woman to the man, making a point, and it appears as though Adam gets the point. Adam gets what God is saying. So what does Adam say? At last, finally, a woman. A woman is good. Uh, it's a little side note. Me and my beautiful wife, our song is Etta James, At Last. And it's just kind of this cool thing when I'm sitting here reading through this. This at last is one of my bones. The words are, at last my love has come along. My lonely days are ever over. But then it paints kind of a cheesy picture of, of uh, a non-reality. It's a pretty song. But uh, our, our words are, uh, our song is at last. And it's just this picture of finally. This picture of finally, woman, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Ben, <laughs> ben gave me his notes uh, to use, uh, he had already put some notes together for tonight, and he was going to be out of town. He was like, well, why don't you teach? And he gave me some notes. And I'm reading through his notes, and I would like to quote verbatim what Ben had in his notes. Ben's notes start, quote, B-I-V. He uses that phrase a lot, the Ben International Version. What Adam is saying is, now you're talking, God. Great googly moogly. Exclamation point. Shazam! Exclamation point. My spell check grabbed all those. Great googly moogly and shazam are not words. But that's what Ben was expressing. When Adam said at last, Ben would have said it as great googly moogly shazam. You get the emphasis. You get the feeling. Woman. Wow. At last. Wonderful. So, Adam then names her, exercising dominion. And then what we see after he names her, exercising that dominion, is we see the first recorded human words in Scripture. And what are they? It's love poetry. Guys, poetry's good. Write some poetry to your woman. That's a good thing. First recorded human words are love poetry. There's romance in the air. It's a God-ordained romance. You can almost hear the Marvin Gaye faint in the background. It's beautiful. But why is it beautiful? It's beautiful. I don't want to cheapen it by saying there's Marvin Gaye in the background. It's beautiful because it's God-ordained. This, uh, this picture 
of God delivering this amazing situation to humanity. And this picture of him giving the, the woman to the man, it's, it's his design. I, I really want us to get that. It's what he wants. God never said, huh, I didn't expect that. They seemed to like each other. That went well. God never did that. This is God's design. God wanted the man to say, at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she came from man. This is love poetry. Adam is moved by the woman. The woman is very different from any other thing that has walked by him. Very different. And he's moved by this, and he knows that it's God's design. So it's a God-ordained beauty. It's a God-ordained romance. It's a God-ordained uh, relationship here. And, and we don't have to be mushy and silly about it um, because it is from God, and it's a beautiful thing. And I hope we can learn from it tonight. Verse 24 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now verse 24, anytime I see a therefore, one of the things that the youth kind of did a study a while back on studying the Bible, and one of the methods that we do is I always ask, what's the therefore, therefore? What is the therefore, therefore? So we're going to ask, what is it therefore? Therefore, therefore. Okay. What's the therefore, therefore? Because woman is made from man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Why? Because woman is made from man. Because God designed this union. Because there is completeness between these two. Because there are no two others more appropriate and fitting for each other. Therefore, man shall leave his mommy and his daddy and cleave to his wife. Leave and cleave. This is a, uh, a phrase that uh, oftentimes it seems like guys, for some reason, it's like at some point, it's like, man, you need to leave and cleave. This is ridiculous. You don't know how to do this. And, and so we're going to look at what it means. We're going to look at the details about what this process looks like. And I want you all to understand the details we're about to go over are biblical details. It's not just counseling 101 for guys and girls who are young and getting married. This is biblical details that we're looking at. What we're looking at is a picture of leave mommy and daddy, get a place, prepare a place, and cleave to your wife. Now, I just want to come right out with it. I clearly have no gray hair, no grandchildren, and I'm sitting here talking to you all about marriage and the beauty of this union as though I have many years behind me. I don't. I'm learning this. I'm thankful that the Lord gives us insight and wisdom into these scriptures so that we can know it, but I don't sit up here as some expert saying, yes, this is how me and my wife of 85 years have done this, and this is how it works. It's not how it is. And so... I want, just as I'm going to humble myself for this word, I want us all to humble ourselves before God and before what he's saying here and hearing what he has to say. So it's a picture of this leaving and cleaving. To cleave, defined, to adhere strongly, to cling to, to sh or to be strongly involved with and attached to. So for men who are moving away from mommy and daddy and beginning a relationship with a woman, before God, for His glory, it is not just a changing of residence. You're not just changing the place you live and who you live with. This relationship that a man has with his wife is supposed to be the closest, most involved relationship that you should have apart from your relationship with Christ. Um, as we read, I encourage you to be uh, transparent before God. Some of the stuff can get offensive. 
Uh, some of when you look at what it really looks like to have a, a God-centered marriage, it's difficult. Uh, conviction will probably, as I was studying this, I was like, dang, I can't believe I'm teaching on this tonight because I'm a bonehead and I need to go and give my wife a big hug and say, I'm sorry that I haven't done this and we need to be, do a better job about doing this. That's okay. Allow God to evoke whatever proper response uh, it should, should happen with you, but I encourage you, uh, be open-minded and consider, again, this is biblical truth that we're looking at. So it's not just a changing of residence. When a man and a woman get together, when a man and woman are going to be married, uh, that relationship is defined as adhering strongly to or being strongly involved with, attached to, clinging to one another. Because God designed this, the best marriage that you can have is God-centered. What are some of the ways that we center our marriages? Uh, Spouse-centered. Child-centered. Spouse-centered, we'll explain how that can be a glorifying thing, but spouse-centered, child-centered, definitely not work-centered, definitely not world-centered. Those are some ways we do, uh, we make mistakes, but the truth is, is the best marriage that you can have is going to be a God-centered marriage. Um, let me explain this. In putting anything or anyone else before God, you do a huge disservice to, and I would even say endanger, your spouse and your children. This is very difficult. Uh, there, there's a guy uh, that I've met with in the past uh, who was in a relationship with a girl, and he said, hey, um, God sometimes calls me to do things, and it takes me away from my time with this girl who I love very much, and I hope to maybe marry one day, and sometimes what God calls me to takes me away from her. And sometimes uh, it, it, you know, I can't spend my time with her, and sometimes it means that I don't even see her for a length of time because of what God's calling me to. And what he experienced was that it frustrated him, and he was frightened by that. He said, this frustrates me and it affects my attitude because what God calls me to, I don't get to spend enough time with this woman who I love. And he, he asked me this question, which was crazy insightful. He said, he said, Scott, how do you keep from putting Lindsay before God? I know you love her. I see how much you love her. How do you keep from putting her before God in the way that you love her? And what I explained to him was that I have no idea how to love my wife apart from Christ. No clue. Complete bonehead. If I try to love my wife outside of Christ, I will fail miserably. Now, what's actually happening here is it's not, he's not just putting his girlfriend, he said his fear is that he's putting his girlfriend before God. That's his fear. What's actually happening is he's not really putting his girlfriend before God. What's happening is he's taking his eyes off of God. See, I should put my wife first in everything, but I keep my eyes set on the things above. What well, we talked about this last Sunday, I keep my eyes set on Christ, and I seek to glorify him in that. So in my, my life, my wife is first in everything, but the only way that she can be first properly is that if we have a God-centered marriage, is God is first in everything. So if I say I want to please my wife, that will never happen outside of pleasing God. I should always seek to please God, and I will please my wife properly. If I want to serve my wife, I have to serve God properly. I can't let one happen outside of the other or it doesn't work right. Now, I'm sure there's a far more eloquent way to say that, but that's the best way I know how to explain that. And in fact, what happens there is that you're choosing a different way than what God's designed. If you try to put your wife first or your children first, we've, I, sometimes we've all maybe even been guilty of it. I know we've seen it, of having a child-centered marriage. Man, I was at a restaurant the other day. I just thought about this. I was at a restaurant the other day. Chick-fil-A, Rockwall, fantastic. We're going to have one soon here. Um, and we're sitting there, 
And I'm looking over, and there's this couple, young couple, with a baby. For a solid 45 minutes, they did not say a word to each other. They sat there and looked at the baby. They didn't, say, they didn't talk. They didn't smile at each other. They sat there and looked at the baby. And I thought to myself, I wonder if that's a child-centered marriage. I wonder if everything revolves around the kids. The more kids you have, I'm sure the harder it is not to have just a only child-centered marriage where every part of your schedule is filled with these activities and extracurricular activities and buying school supplies in the last minute when you're at Walmart when I went there last night and there were 8,000 people there on Sunday night getting their school supplies. Um, I can understand how that becomes more difficult and more difficult. But the truth is, is that the best way that you can love your child is to have a God-centered marriage. The best way you can love your wife is to have a God-centered marriage. The best way you can love your husband is to have a God-centered marriage. And so, again, this is difficult to, uh, to explain, but what you're wanting to make sure you don't do is choose something different. Um, remember, God already laid the groundwork that this is my design, and if you choose an alternative way, it is sin, and it leads to death. Does that make sense? We're all clear on that? Good. I'm confused. We'll go on anyway. Okay, so you do a disservice to and would even endanger your spouse and your children if you don't have a God-centered marriage. Why? Because you cannot properly love, lead, or follow anybody outside of Christ. So the best thing you can do for your spouse and your children is to have a God-centered marriage where you are seeking to glorify God by obediently living according to his design. He's laid out his design, and for his glory, you are supposed to live according to what that design is. Sadly, I was talking to Brad Cardwell this afternoon about this, sadly, the problem for many men is not that they're continually putting their wives before God. That's not normally the problem, if we're going to be honest. The problem isn't that often we put our wives before God, but that there's no place for our wives at all in a lot of circumstances, and that's a sad circumstance. If we put God first, what we're going to be doing is not just making sure things are in order and I did this, I did this, I did this, great, I'm a good Christian. That's not what it is. As you put God first, by the power of the Holy Spirit, He guides you in the Scriptures on how to love properly. He guides you on how to respond properly, how to manage your time properly. And He doesn't do it just so you have an easy life. He does it for His glory and for His honor. So, uh, the problem is not often that we're putting our wives or spouses or children before God, but often we're taking our eyes off of God and, uh, and not living according to his plan for his glory. The obligation that you have to your spouse takes precedence as we look at this. You look at, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they become one flesh. The obligation that you have, and it's obligations that we have as Christians are joyful obligations. They're obligations that are great. You know, the, the commandments of God are not burdensome, so it's not an obligation like, oh, I'm going to try and love my wife today. It's not the way it is. Our, our obligations are joyful. And so the obligation that you have to your wife or to your husband takes precedence, period. Um, an example, uh, we have a rule here at Crosspoint with the staff rule. That sounds funny. Um, we have a, uh, an encouragement that if we're in staff meeting, uh, we, we always have our cell phones um, uh, on us because it's a wicked age where cell phones ring everywhere. And, uh, and we turn them off, but you know, usually they're always sitting there on silent. And so we, we turn the, the sound off, but it goes, and it's really distracting anyway when they go off. And uh, we have kind of this rule that if it's your wife, you answer it. 
doesn't matter what we're talking about. doesn't matter what we're in the midst of. doesn't matter how crazy it is. Even if you have to answer it and say, I love you. Can I call you back in a few minutes? Answer the phone. Why? Because the obligation that you have to your spouse takes precedent over all of the things. And I don't ever want my wife to think that even my ministry is more important to me than her. She needs to know. She's not even here tonight. I'll tell her when I get home. She needs to know that she is first and that I hope to love her properly by putting God at the center of everything that we do. And so that takes uh, obligation to your wife or your husband takes precedent. Marriage. This all started out by the Lord God said it is not good that man should be alone. But what I want to look at is marriage is not just a remedy for loneliness. Ben's talked about this before. We're going to look at it for just a minute here. Marriage is not just a remedy for loneliness. Like the things we talked about this last Sunday, marriage points to something greater. Remember this last Sunday we talked about how no matter where you're at, mountaintop, valley, things are great, things are horrible. Let them point to something greater. Let it point to some, point you Godward. Let it center you on Christ. Um, it points to something greater. Marriage depicts God's relationship with his people. Y'all turn to Hosea 2, verses 14 through 23. If you've got an ESV, that's page 752. Hosea 2, verses 14 through 23. Now, God, Yahweh in this instance, is referring to Israel. And I want you all to look at the imagery here, the words that he chooses in reference. It's Hosea 2, verses 14 through 23. Therefore, behold... I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will make her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. This picture, marriage as we see it today, points to something greater. It's not the end in itself. Um, Marriage points to this picture of the relationship that God has with his people. And here, as he refers to Israel and this picture of protection, this picture of sacrifice, this picture of love, uh, it is a picture uh, that is what our marriages point to. Turn to Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, 32. It's on page 978, if you have the ESV. Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 32. Now, we've seen in the Old Testament how God is speaking of Israel, and now what we're going to see here is how Christ refers to the new Israel, how Christ refers to the church here in the New Testament. 
Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 32. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands, you should love their, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. In case you didn't get it before, here you go. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Uh, In your marriage, you are living out the gospel before neighbors, friends, family, and children. If you understand that your marriage, as God has designed it, and as he said, this is my design, and it's good, it's great, it's wonderful, as you live that out, seeking God's glory in everything that you do, what you're doing in your marriage is it's kind of this micro-gospel. If husbands are loving wives appropriately, and wives are loving and submitting to husbands appropriately, and husbands are dying daily for their wives as Christ died for his bride, as those things are happening, what you're doing is presenting a little micro-gospel to everyone you come in contact with. Your neighbors, your friends, your family when they visit, your children as they watch you. You're presenting the gospel because your marriage points to a greater picture of the union of God and his church. And a scary part of that is you can be a great witness to the truth or you can completely misrepresent the truth. Uh, Our hope is that you would cling to the scriptures and submit yourselves to God and put him in the center of everything and that you would represent the truth properly. The people wouldn't look and say, oh, they're a Christian couple. Weird. It's awkward how they're always screaming at each other and ripping each other's faces off and talking bad about each other. When you see the first words that Adam had for his woman, it said, last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Those are the words that are representative of the way a man should speak to a woman. Other names that are sometimes men call women if they're angry or if their pride is welling up inside of them, those names are inappropriate, unbiblical. You don't slander a woman. You don't talk down to a woman. You don't beat her down with your words. Adam sets a perfect example in the way that you should talk to your woman. So our hope is that we would properly represent the truth and not misrepresent it. We don't want people to look at our marriages and not be able to see that it paints a portrait of this beautiful gospel in the relationship between God and his people. So go back to Genesis 2, verses 24 through 25. Genesis 2, 24 through 25. Therefore a mother shall leave his father. (laughs) That, however, is not what it says. That is wrong. Don't do that. Wow. Wow. Therefore, a man 
shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Naked and not ashamed. First of all, what Scripture is saying here, as we all blush, is that for man and wife, it's real good to be naked and unashamed. That's not a shameful thing. It's not a dirty thing. It's not the thing where, I can't believe he talked about that in front of everybody. Uh, you're married. It's good for you to be naked. It's a great thing. So, um, nakedness in marriage is good. We'll leave it at that. No need to go into details. Uh, also, nakedness uh, in, in that scenario is, is a picture of something else. It's a picture of openness and trust between a husband and a wife. It's something that was... Um, In Christ, it survives through the fall. You know, we know that in the fall, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks, that there is um, there's something that happens after they sin. What do they realize? They realize, uh-oh, we're naked. They weren't worried about being naked in front of each other. They're worried about being naked in front of God. What happened is that the righteousness that they had and their created purpose was gone because of the sin. And so, in their unrighteousness, they knew that before God, He would see their unrighteousness. So it wasn't between each other that they didn't want to be naked. It was between them and God. And then they sowed their fig leaves, which withered quickly. Uh, Adam and Eve covered themselves because of God, not each other. Uh, Nakedness is also a picture of vulnerability, searchability, and authenticity. Our conclusion for the night is this. You are the most like God created you to be when you are working with each other, helping one another, naked or authentic, before God and each other. What we've talked about tonight is just a snapshot. It is really just a snapshot of a much bigger, beautiful picture. As you study these things, as you parent, as you walk with your spouse, remember that you were created for God's glory. I I hope that's ingrained in your brains, in your heads, in your soul, in your heart, that you understand you are created for God's glory. So as you study these things, remember that you were created for God's glory. The differences, between you, the differences between you, between husband and wife, man and woman, the differences between you are for the purpose of His glory. The completeness that you feel and experience with each other is not something that stops with you. It's not just so you feel warm fuzzies and you're like, mm, I love you, complete me. It doesn't stop with you. It's for the glory of God. I encourage you to properly represent this truth by putting God's glory on display in your marriage, in your parenting, and in every other relationship as you obediently live according to God's design. God has given us the warning that if you take his design and you choose an alternative, it's wrong, it's sin, it leads to death. So I encourage you, don't misrepresent the truth that you've heard. Don't misrepresent the truth that you know. When you're angry and you want to spout off and say something that you know is inappropriate and unbiblical, don't do it. Set your mind on these things. Set your mind on the things above. Consider that you were created not for your own whatever you want to do. You're created for God's glory. So I encourage you, cling to this, properly represent the truth, and just put God's glory on display everywhere you go and just see what happens. The people whose marriages that I see that are just wonderful and I'm encouraged by them, if you go and ask them, hey, how do you do that? They don't say, well, you know, we're just made for each other. It's easy. Usually they say it's work, and it's, it's good work. And it's God-centered, God-ordained work. And, uh, and it's for the glory of God. And usually it's a very humble um, approach when you see that. So 
I encourage you all on that. If you have any questions about any of this, Ben will be back tomorrow, so you should just <laughs> shoot him an email. Uh, let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, again, I'm just blown away that we can know any truth at all. I'm blown away that we can open up the scriptures and just see words that were breathed from your mouth. God, I thank you uh, for the design that you've given us. Uh, thank you for my amazing wife. I pray that each of us would love one another, serve each other, humble ourselves before you appropriately um, as we seek to glorify you in every arena of life. I pray specifically that if any of the things that we've seen about the way that you design marriage and about the way that you design a union between a man and a woman, I pray that if any conviction uh, has fallen on any hearts or minds tonight, I pray that it wouldn't go away when you walk out the door. I pray that if anyone's convicted by the word tonight, that it would be something that they talk to someone about or that they talk to their spouse about. And I pray that tonight, the homes of the people here would be filled with prayer as they seek to glorify you in marriage and in parenting and in the union that you have designed and that you have brought together. God, we know that as we walk this earth, it's not about us being happy here on the earth or what we can achieve or or build up in, in riches that we know are be eaten by moths and rust. Uh, we know that it's about your glory and your honor. We know that we have a heavenly dwelling uh, that you are preparing us for as Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. God, we love you and we praise you. We kind of a great privilege to be here, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. See you all later.